The World Economic Forum recently hosted the first in-person Davos meeting in more than two years, and you can catch up with the action on our podcast, Radio Davos, which looks at the world's biggest challenges and how we might solve them, long-form interviews on Meet the Leader, and bringing you the complete audio from some of the most fascinating discussions in Davos, Agenda Dialogues. You'll hear some of the world's sharpest minds, like Tom Friedman, who's asked, is globalisation dead? If World War I didn't stop globalisation, if World War II didn't stop globalisation, what makes you think the war between Ukraine and Russia is going to stop globalization? The biggest economists, like the IMF's Gita Gopinath, on the future of economic growth. I've heard people worry about wages going up is a problem because that can feed into inflation. This is to be very clear. Prices going up is inflation. We certainly could see an environment where wages go up, but that doesn't have to necessarily generate a wage price spiral. Psychologist Adam Grant on the four-day week. And we want to plan work around life as opposed to vice versa, which too many of us, particularly in the West, have done for too long. Is the four-day week actually viable? In discussions moderated by A-list journalists challenging the consensus. 2021, we were told that this was transitory inflation. 2022, the beginning of, we were told this is transitory inflation. The causes of that inflation were misdiagnosed. Wherever you get your podcasts, to listen in on the action at Davos 2022, subscribe to Agenda Dialogues. We are in for fairly material slowdown in terms of economic activity around the world. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, if the global economy is slowing down but prices are going up, are we headed for the thing economic policymakers fear perhaps more than anything? Stagflation. Stagnation from an economic perspective and still elevated inflation on both the consumer price front and the wage growth front. That is definitely something that authorities throughout the world want to avoid. Gregory Dacko, chief economist at EY Parthenon, gives us his view on where things are headed in the coming months. This environment of a material global growth slowdown will put downward pressure on supply chain constraints and help ease some of the strains that we're seeing. Fortunately, it's not the type of improvement in the imbalance that we would want to see. Ideally, what we would want to see is supply coming up to demand rather than demand coming down to supply. And he tells us what the private sector has to do to prevent economies plunging into a deep recession. If we have this type of environment, then I think we can stave off a recessionary environment. We can avoid certainly a deep recession. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum and with Greg Dacko, Chief Economist at EY Parthenon on slowing growth, inflation and stagflation. It's a key concern for global economic activity and just for global activity in general. This is Radio Davos. The global economy's been having a rocky ride. There was the pandemic, there was the supply chain squeeze coming out of the pandemic, and then Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Many developed countries now have inflation levels unseen for a generation or two, and economic growth is down. We've heard from several senior economists in recent weeks, both here on Radio Davos and on our sister podcast, Agenda Dialogues. Please listen back on those. On this episode, my colleague Abhinav Chug spoke to Gregory Dacko, who's the chief economist at EY Parthenon, Ernst & Young's global strategy consulting arm. Abhinav started by asking Greg Dacko which economic issue did he think was currently not receiving enough attention? Well, I think the issue that's receiving the most attention is inflation, and, and rightly so, because it's a key concern uh, for global economic activity and, and just for uh, global activity in, in general. 
Um, I think the one issue that is perhaps uh, underestimated in terms of, of potential risks uh, to global economic activity is that of food insecurity. Uh, we've seen that in the wake of the war in Ukraine, uh, we've had some significant disruptions to uh, food flows around the world, uh, and we continue to have them. Uh, the combination of uh, sanctions, uh, the combination of trade tensions, as well as some, some bad weather, uh, which have influenced crops, are affecting food prices. And we've seen food prices reach record highs in recent months. Um, and the reason why I think this is an underestimated issue is that it's not just an issue for today. It's an issue for tomorrow as well, because uh, we are in this environment where we could see lingering disruptions to food supplies. And we know that those can have political uh, ramifications, in particular um, in countries in the Middle East and Northern Africa, where in the past we've seen bread riots um, when there are disruptions to uh, food prices and food supply. So that is, in my opinion, one uh, key issue that is perhaps under-discussed, but should be an area of focus and attention uh, over the coming months. And there are various versions of austerity coming forward by, by governments around the world, from watering deficits to negative fiscal impulses. What could this lead to, given rising inflationary pressures? Well, I think the number one consequence of uh, less significant positive fiscal impulse around the world is that you have less demand growth. Um, one of the key facets of the COVID recovery was that governments around the world uh, put in place massive stimulus programs to try to stave off the initial impact from the COVID crisis, where you had a sudden stop in demand and a sudden stop in supply. Um, and the massive influx of government stimulus allowed for a very rapid recovery um, in economies throughout the world, the U.S. being a prime example where the passage of over $5.5 trillion of fiscal stimulus measures, more than 10% of GDP, allowed the U.S. economy to really recover very rapidly from what was one of the most significant post-World War II economic shocks. Um, so that was the key impulse. Now we're seeing much less fiscal impulse. Actually, in most advanced economies, you're actually seeing a drag uh, from the fiscal side of the picture, which if combined with an environment where you have higher inflation, um, will essentially erode uh, demand growth, erode uh, growth overall, and weigh on economic activity. Now, there are some indications that that's not the only thing that's happening around the world. There are uh, instances where we're actually seeing some desires by governments uh, to actually increase or expand uh, fiscal measures. We've seen in particular uh, in Europe this desire to increase energy independence um, and to focus on um, energy investments over the next few years. That may be another source of fiscal impulse, um, but it is a, a fairly minimal source that will likely play out over a longer period of time, very different from the types of investments that we saw in the post-recovery period. Real wages are also under pressure what could a wage price spiral lead to? Are we are we at a risk of heading towards a situation where there's stagflation? Well, the, the idea of a, a wage price spiral uh, goes back to the, the late 1960s and early 1970s, where we had an environment uh, in most countries around the world where you had elevated inflation, 
and as a result, elevated wage growth. And the combination of the two were feeding off of each other. The idea being that in a higher inflation environment, um, employees would essentially have uh, more bargaining power and they would ask for high, higher wages. Now, companies facing uh, those requests would then have to essentially uh, take on those additional costs, but also pass them on. And so they would increase their prices. And so you end up with this environment where you're essentially in a higher inflation regime, where inflation is no longer trending at a, a, a modest 2% clip, but it's at a 4, 5, 6, 7% steady state, um, which is very different uh, in terms of the economic consequences. Because what tends to happen in a high inflation regime is that uh, you have an erosion of growth. Consumers spend less because in real terms, when you adjust um, wage growth for inflation, where, where you essentially adjust wage growth for the cost of living, um, then that is actually declining. And so what, you happen often, what happens oftentimes is that consumers are less able to spend, businesses are less able to invest and hire, um, and so there is a natural cutback in economic activity. It leads to slower growth, slower productivity growth, and depressed living standards. And that type of environment is something that uh, most authorities around the world, whether it's governments or central banks, really want to avoid. They want to avoid this type of so-called stagflationary environment where you have stagflation, uh, stagnation from an economic perspective and still elevated inflation um, on both the consumer price front and the wage growth front. That is definitely something that authorities throughout the world want to avoid. And, and what measures do economies undertake to avoid these kind of wage price spirals and stagflation? What have they done in the past and what, what do you see a lot of governments and central banks doing right now to handle the situation? Well, I think the key is really understanding what drives uh, these wage price spirals. Uh, right now, I don't think we're in that type of environment, uh, certainly not at a global level. There might be some countries that are uh, inching closer to that type of environment where you do have elevated inflation and elevated wage growth. Um, the U.S., for instance, might be an example where there is a risk of moving into that realm. Uh, we're not there yet. We have CPI inflation that's around 8.5%, a 40-year high. We have wage growth that's uh, slightly above 5%, also near a 40-year high. Um, but we have not seen this acceleration uh, of this, this uh, phenomenon. We've not seen uh, inflation continue to accelerate. If anything, there are signs that it may be plateauing. Um, and wage growth is also uh, not accelerating. We're seeing wage growth stabilize in that, that upper 5% range, which is certainly uh, concerning from a, a long-term historical perspective. Um, but we're not seeing that move further up. Um, if you look at Europe, uh, in the Eurozone in general, we have record high inflation, multi-decade high inflation, but wage growth is not excessively um, hot, and therefore that's also uh, less of a concern. The key concern for, for policymakers is really that we end up moving towards that type of environment. And in order to avoid that, they really want to make sure that they anchor inflation expectations at a, a moderate uh, to, to low level. Essentially avoid a situation where people expect inflation to continue to be rampant, expect to see higher wage growth, and then we move towards that higher inflation regime and the risks of stagflation increase. So what central banks are doing throughout the world is essentially tightening monetary policy quite aggressively. We are in the midst of an unprecedented 
global synchronized policy tightening cycle. Um, and that will weigh on inflation dynamics. It will first weigh on demand. We've already started to see the initial signs of weaker demand growth in interest rate sensitive sectors. It's also weighing on financial conditions, which will weigh on demand. And eventually the, the, the idea or the thought process from central bankers is that by weakening demand, we'll see essentially a rebalancing of demand and supply, which will put downward pressure on inflation and avoid economies throughout the world moving from um, a, a current moderate inflation regime towards a high inflation regime, which typically tends to take much more drastic actions to um, uh, exit from these, these higher inflation regimes. And given you mentioned that that wages are not really growing across much of the advanced economies, would you could you share some insights on what we mean by perhaps wage restraint? And could that be a potential solution here? Well, if you look at wage growth relative to inflation in most uh, economies throughout the world, what you have is essentially negative uh, inflation adjusted wage growth. So if you take wage growth, nominal wage growth and adjusted for the cost of living, um, it's actually we're actually living through a period where you have in most countries a contraction in so-called real wages. So inflation adjusted wages are, are falling. There have been some discussions in some uh, countries around the world, most notably uh, the UK, where there's been discussion of so-called wage restraint. Uh, the idea being that there is an agreement uh, between employees and employers and oftentimes unions uh, not to request higher wages. Um, and by doing so, essentially, you curb or reduce the pressure on businesses, on companies to then pass on those higher wage bills, those higher labor costs. Uh, to the final consumer. Now, that is not necessarily the, the optimal way um, out of this uh, situation of, of sticky and persistent high inflation. Um, I think we often forget that there are easier, not perhaps not easier, but um, ways that may increase standards of living that can help alleviate some of the uh, pressures, especially on the labor front. Um, and one of those is increasing productivity. Uh, that can come through an increase in the labor supply. So increasing labor force participation, which we know is still constrained relative to the pre-COVID period. So that is one way to alleviate some of the wage pressures, because if you have greater supply, that tends to put downward pressure um, on wage growth. And the other is productivity in terms of processes, ensuring that you have the most efficient uh, processes in place to allow uh, some of the higher unit labor costs be offset uh, by these productivity gains. Those are important uh, strategies that businesses have to consider and that a lot of businesses are considering in the current environment. And if, if wage restraint is not being looked at as a solution, are there any consequences in terms of expected wage inflation in the coming months? Could it overtake price inflation? Well, there's certainly a, a potential uh, for the dynamic between inflation and wage growth to reverse, uh, if not uh, on a, a or structural basis, on a more uh, on a shorter term uh, basis. We are going to be over the next year or so in an environment where global economic activity is going to slow down materially. Uh, global growth is likely to slow from close to six percent last year to around three percent, and perhaps slightly below that. Um, this year and then and then next. Um, in the US, we're expecting growth also to cool from 
just above 5.5% uh, to around 2% this year and, and probably less than 1% next year. So we are in for fairly material uh, slowdown in terms of economic activity around the world. That will put downward pressure um, on inflationary dynamics. We know there's some stickiness to price inflation. We're seeing in some countries the advent of higher housing prices, um, higher rent prices, which is leading to some stickiness in prices. We're also seeing some sectors that are in higher demand right now, like the service sector, travel, leisure, hospitality in general, which are also seeing upward pressures. But I would expect that as we see slower demand globally, in particular for goods, we're going to see some pretty uh, significant disinflationary forces way down on the overall inflation outlook. Now, that may take time to be filtered through to wage growth, but if we, at the same time as we see these disinflationary forces, these disinflationary pressures in some sectors of the economy, we see some restraint in terms of hiring um, and perhaps a cooler labor market throughout the world, that might also put downward pressure on wage growth. So I wouldn't expect necessarily to see uh, an environment where for a prolonged period of time we see wage growth um, higher than, than inflation, but it's certainly a possibility. The thing is that it wouldn't be a possibility on the upside, i.e. it wouldn't be a situation where wage growth accelerates much faster than inflation. It would actually be most likely a situation where inflation decelerates more or faster than wage growth. And so that would be the type of situation we would be in most likely. So global economic activity is bound to reduce. We're, we're going to see growth come down. However, global debt ratios keep rising as well. What could this lead to, especially for the developing world? Yeah, as we look around the world, uh, we are in an environment where um, governments throughout the world passed a lot of fiscal measures uh, to try to stave off the, the economic impact uh, from uh, the COVID crisis and facilitate a rapid recovery uh, from the COVID crisis. Um, what that has led to is higher debt levels. Um, and in an environment where economic activity is slowing, the debt ratios uh, across the world are rising. Sovereign debt ratios are, are rising. Um, that in itself is not excessively worrisome. What is worrisome is the cost of that debt. Uh, because when you look at the, the debt servicing ratios throughout the world, they are rising and they're rising for two reasons. Number one, as we said, the levels of debt uh, across a number of, of markets, both advanced markets and emerging markets have increased. But in addition to that, we have an environment in which interest rates are rising. Uh, interest rates across most advanced economies are rising rapidly. Interest rates across emerging markets are also rising. And so in that type of environment, the debt servicing cost is also increasing. And one important element to note, in particular for um, developing economies around the world, is that the uh, rise or the strengthening or the appreciation in the U.S. dollar adds another layer of burden on top of the rising levels of debt and the rising interest rate cost. Because if you have a larger share or a large share of your debt that is in dollars, the appreciation of the, 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 the US dollar makes that debt that much more expensive. So for a number of emerging markets, we are in an environment where the cost of servicing debt is increasing. It is increasing at a relatively rapid pace, and it could cause some problems in terms of debt sustainability 
in the coming months and coming years. So we are paying very close attention to that development. Again, the combination of higher debt levels, higher interest rates, and a stronger dollar mean that it costs more to service the debt uh, for a number of developing countries. But how, how sustainable do you think the solution of rising interest rates by central banks as a solution, I mean, as a coping mechanism is? Because, I mean, we saw with the in the U.S. with the Fed raising interest rates uh, to handle the crisis of, during the COVID-19 pandemic, and now we're seeing some of the consequences of that as well. Would you? How, what do you think would be your recommendation for, for other economies to kind of avoid the situation that, that the U.S. is encountering right now, for example? Well, I think that uh, it's undeniable that we were in an environment where uh, you had um, inflation or we're in an environment in which central banks were a little bit late uh, to react uh, to higher inflation dynamics. Uh, most central banks around the world believe that the bout of inflation would be largely transitory uh, a year ago. And here we are with an environment where there is increasing persistence in terms of inflation dynamics. Um, so when you look at what central banks around the world are doing, uh, the key element to focus on is essentially ensuring that you have uh, uh, avoiding a situation in which inflation expectations are getting out of hand. Essentially an environment in which inflation expectations continue to grow and in which um, you risk moving towards a higher inflation, higher wage regime, wage growth regime, where you are essentially um, edging closer and closer to a stagflationary environment. One important consideration, though, uh, for a lot of central banks around the world is uh, the ramifications from a foreign exchange perspective of having the Fed tightening monetary policy more rapidly than others. Um, if you look at the recent appreciation of the U.S. dollar, it's essentially a reflection of the fact that the Fed is moving aggressively to tighten monetary policy. That has the effect on other economies of their currencies depreciating if their central banks are not raising rates as rapidly or tightening monetary policy as rapidly as the Fed. And a depreciating currency for these markets means that there's even a greater pass-through of inflationary dynamics because import prices are rising. And for small open economies, um, like a number of, of, of emerging markets, that can add another layer of complication. So I think one of the encouraging developments that we've seen in emerging markets in, in recent months and during the COVID period is rather proactive monetary policy uh, with central banks tightening monetary policy in advance of uh, the Fed and actually preventing some of these, some of these um, devaluating forces um, that are occurring right now with the Fed tightening monetary policy aggressively. You, you mentioned import uh, costs rising as well. How much of a factor have supply chain disruptions been to rising inflationary pressures as well? Has, has the war in Ukraine also been a factor in contributing towards it? Yeah, I think, I mean, if you look at the, the inflation numbers today, um, they would be notably lower had there not been the war in Ukraine. Uh, we are in a situation where we've seen a significant ramp up in oil prices, in gas prices, natural gas prices, in um, agricultural commodities, in fertilizers, in a number of raw materials that are emanating directly or indirectly from the war in Ukraine. Um, so it's undeniable that in today's environment, uh, some of the inflationary pressures that we're seeing are a reflection of what is happening uh, in Eastern Europe uh, with the war in Ukraine. 
Unfortunately, this is something that we have to deal with. It's not like we can go back in time and readjust that situation. That is a factor that is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. We are seeing sanctions being increased vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia. We are seeing lingering disruptions in terms of food supplies, in terms of uh, commodities, um, and these are not going to disappear overnight. Um, we are seeing the Europe, European Union move away from energy dependence from uh, Russia. We are seeing um, crops being disrupted across Ukraine. Um, those will have ramifications, not just today, but in the coming months and coming years. And so as a result of that, we're seeing these disruptions reverberate uh, throughout the world and lead to higher energy prices. The natural gas prices in the US, for instance, is a good example where they've tripled, nearly quadrupled um, over the past few months as a result of increased uh, an increased desire to export um, US natural gas to Europe to replace some of the inflows from, from Russia. But capacity um, on, on the US front in terms of exporting capacity is limited. And so as a result, you're seeing domestic price pressures increase. That's just one example of how a disruption on one side of the world can affect prices on the other, even if the markets are or were presumed uh, to be largely separate. So in this globally integrated environment, we are going to continue to see ramifications and consequences from the war in Ukraine um, and from various other supply chain disruptions, including the, the zero COVID policy in China, which led to renewed supply chain tensions across Asia and further exacerbated price pressures around the world. Now, you, you laid out how there's a decoupling underway and that these disruptions are not bound to go away in the coming years. Now, despite that, do you foresee a market correction happening in the next six months or a year? Um, do, you, do you see that, do you find that supply chains will reorient themselves uh, with production centers shifting elsewhere? Uh, what does the scenario look like for, for the coming year? Well, I think we can certainly see and, and we will likely see a significant uh, and material slowdown in economic activity throughout the world. Um, but that type of disruption to economic activity will largely come from the demand side. So we're going to see lower demand growth uh, in most economies around the world. We may see a contraction in demand overall in some economies around the world. Now, to some extent, that may help uh, rebalance uh, some of the imbalances that we're observing today in terms of uh, demand and labor. Uh, we know that supply chain constraints have been in place for the better part of, of the last year and a half, 18 months. Um, and those may be eased by not just supply increasing, but demand cooling. Because we know that one of the key factors that was behind uh, the ever increasing supply chain constraints was the fact that demand was relatively hot including in the US, uh, where there, were strong, there was strong demand for goods, strong demand now for services, which put upward pressure and um, significant constraints on supply chains that were already uh, quite strained at the time. So in this environment where you see cooling demand, where the odds of a recession uh, in the US are relatively elevated uh, before the end of the year, where the odds of a material slowdown in Europe are also elevated, these um, this recessionary environment, this environment of a material global growth slowdown will put downward pressure on supply chain constraints and help ease some of the, the strains that we're seeing. Unfortunately, it's not the type 
of improvement in the situation, improvement in the imbalance that we would want to see. Ideally, what we would want to see is supply coming up to demand rather than demand coming down to uh, supply. So that is uh, perhaps an unfortunate consequence of an environment where this imbalance has led to higher inflationary pressures, where central banks around the world are proceeding with a synchronized tightening cycle, putting upward pressure on interest rates, leading to tighter financial conditions and constraining business activity in this high inflation environment, where consumers are going to be much more careful with their purchases, where businesses are going to be much more careful with their investments and with their hiring plans, and where as a result, you're going to see a slowdown, a cooling of economic activity globally. Thank you. Thank you so much for providing this context to to the situation we're witnessing. Just to close off, uh, what kind of trends would you be monitoring over the coming months? What are what what factors are you most interested in? I think the number one uh, element to focus on is uh, private sector activity and intentions of activity, uh, because that will be really a key guide as to whether the global economy navigates this period of uncertainty with relative ease, or whether we end up in an environment that is uh, recessionary, where we end up in an environment where there is an outright contraction in economic activity. And what I mean by that is essentially paying very close attention to not just what consumers are saying, uh, but really what they're doing. Um, Are consumers still buying? Um, And if so, what are they buying and how are they buying? Um, Are businesses uh, still hiring? And if so, to what extent? uh, With what horizon are they looking at? Um, And also, what are they investing in? Um, Are we still seeing signs that uh, private sector businesses are investing in the future, are aiming to increase productivity, um, and are aiming to essentially ensure a world where they've built up uh, resilience, resilience to potential downward shocks in terms of economic activity, in terms of the health situation, in terms of uh, logistical disruptions, And if we have this type of environment, then I think we can stave off a recessionary environment. We can uh, avoid certainly a deep recession. Um, And I think that's encouragingly one of the directions where we're seeing businesses uh, build build out their their investment efforts. It's in ensuring that they are resilient uh, to the next potential downturn or to a period of prolonged uncertainty. Uh, And that is very encouraging because if that is the direction in which businesses are heading into, that can not only ensure uh, a stronger outlook uh, in terms of economic activity, but it can also ensure that we have stronger productivity growth, higher living standards, and higher long-term potential growth. And that is really key in terms of global economic activity. Greg Dacko, Chief Economist at EY Parthenon, was speaking to Abhinav Chug. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>